Father, uh, we come to you today, and uh, Lord, we do live in a difficult time, and maybe you could call it a time of affliction, in the land of affliction, Lord. Uh, it seems that, that our lives have been totally changed by the impact of this coronavirus, and Lord, help us to, to during these times to remember that our mission has not changed. And that mission, Lord, that you've given us, as we'll see today in the text that you've given us, is to bear fruit in this lost and dying world. I I think our mission is even more important now than it's ever been, Lord. And so I ask you to to, uh, press on our hearts the the desire to want to fulfill that mission, especially now, Lord, to be your light in this very dark world. And you're going to show us how to do that. That's what you did in... Joseph's life and his day in the land of affliction in which he lived. And, Lord, you're going to do that for us. If, if we'll just do our part and seek you and abide in you, Lord, then we can bear fruit even in the darkest of times. That's the lesson you have for us today, Lord. And I ask you to just to seal that on our heart and press that on our heart as we go through this study. Uh, I ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. The night before Jesus went to the cross, he, if you go to John chapter 14, and he, he prayed for his disciples, and he exhorted his disciples about what he wanted them to do. And one of the things that he, one of the main things he wanted to be sure that his disciples understood was how important it was for them to bear fruit. They were going to live in some very difficult times, and he wanted them to bear fruit. And that's why I told you to go to John chapter 15, and that's, that's where we want to pick up today, in John chapter 15 in verse number 5. And listen to what Jesus says there. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone, now, who abides in him? Those who know him. If anyone does not abide in me. Now listen to this very carefully. There's a warning here. He is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you, but if you abide in me and my words abide in you. And that's really how you abide in the Lord. One of the primary ways you abide in the Lord, Lord is through his word. And his words abide in you. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And because it will be done for you, you will bear much fruit. And then he says, by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit for you will be my disciples. Now, what he means by that, when he says you will be my disciples, you will be known to be my disciples. That's how people know that we're disciples of Jesus Christ. We could tell them all day long that we're disciples of Jesus Christ, but they're only going to really see that we're disciples of Jesus Christ if we bear much fruit. Now, Jesus gives them this exhortation. He gives them this, this, this order to bear fruit. And then he turns right around and he tells them how difficult it's going to be for them to bear fruit because they're going to live in such a uh, terrible world, a world that hates Christ and hates the disciples of Christ. Go with me now to verse number 18, and you'll see exactly 
what he says there, he says in verse number 18, if the world hates you, and that's a first-class condition there, the world does hate you. If you're a believer, the world hates you. And the reason it hates you, because it hated, as Jesus says here, it hated me before it hated you. So if, if, if uh, you're going to bear fruit, you're going to bear fruit in, the, in a world that hates you, that opposes you. And he goes on with that theme. And let's just get one example. Jump down to chapter 16, verse number 2. He, say they, he says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, in time, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God a service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. Then he kind of sums it all up in verse number 33 of chapter 16. Go there with me, the last verse of chapter 16, and listen to what he says. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In other words, you're going to have a lot of trouble. You're you're in the land of affliction. You're going to suffer in that land of affliction. But if you abide in me, you will have peace. You will have peace in the fact that you're doing the right thing. In this world, he goes on to say, you will have tribulation. Not you might have tribulation. You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. In other words, you're going to have lots of tribulation. You're going to have lots of affliction because you live in the land of affliction. You live in a world that hates Jesus Christ. Now, up until now in the United States of America, I don't know that you could say that was the case. But one of the things that this coronavirus has done is kind of exposed just how the world feels about the church. In states like California and and Washington, they have placed the church in the same category as NFL football, as entertainment, as entertainment, unnecessary entertainment. And that's why they've told the churches in those states that you're not going to meet until maybe the end of the year. We're not going to allow you to meet. And you can understand why people are, are, are bucking that order and wanting to, to meet as a church. I understand that. And we would have, I'm glad we don't have that problem. Again, as I said earlier, I thank Governor Edwards for the fact that he is allowing us to meet. But I understand there, the, a lot of the churches in California are saying that they're going to meet come May the 31st. It's going to be interesting to see if, see if they really actually do that because they are going to have some problems. It's going to be interesting to see just how much persecution they face. But in this world, you are going to have tribulation. And again, I think this virus has exposed the fact that that as a church, you can expect to have tribulation. But listen to what Jesus says. Just listen to how he ends this. He says, but be of good cheer. I mean, as Paul says, rejoice always, always rejoice, because I have overcome the world. And since I have overcome the world, even in this land of affliction, even in this world that hates you, you're going to be able to bear fruit. You're going to be able to bear much fruit. And that's exactly what happened in the life of Joseph. So we're going to come back to the story of Joseph now. So turn with me back to Genesis. Genesis chapter number 41. And we're going to pick up today in verse number 37. That's, isn't that the story of Joseph? 
I mean, wasn't he an overcomer? I mean, he certainly lived in a land of affliction. I mean, think about it. I mean, think about the murderous intent his brothers had when they threw him into that pit and then sold him off to slavery. Jesus overcame that. How did he overcome that? He overcame that by getting them to sell Joseph to the Midianites, the savage Midianites. How did Jesus overcome the savage Midianites? He had the savage Midianites uh, put it on their heart to sell Joseph to Potiphar. Joseph prospered in Potiphar's house, and and, uh, uh, he was doing real well until Potiphar's wife made that false accusation against him. How did Jesus overcome that false accusation? Well, once he was in prison, he gave him favor favor with the jailer and, and put him in charge of the jail. And, and then he got to interpret the dreams of the butler and the baker, and the butler was hung, and the baker, the baker forgot him. He was released and forgot Joseph. How did he overcome the, baker, the butler's bad memory? He, restored, he jogged his memory in the presence of Pharaoh. How did he overcome those chains and fetters that, that Joseph was wearing, those chains and fetters that hurt his feet and hurt his hands? How did he overcome that? Well, he gave Joseph the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. And uh, he interpreted his dreams, and he gave him a plan for, for the future famine that was coming upon uh, the earth, and he overcame the po- very greatest power in all of Egypt. And, and, and all of this, it, what Jesus was doing, he was overcoming Joseph's bad character. Joseph started out this whole process uh, in the beginning of this story, and he really was an arrogant, puffed-up little kid. And, and, and he... And, he overcame that. Jesus overcame his immaturity and made him a man of great character through those trials and afflictions that he allowed in Joseph's lives. And, and all of these victories came in a very difficult land, in the land of affliction. I mean, you just think about it. There, there was never uh, a more pagan and demonic uh, world uh, than there was in the Uh, in the time in which uh, Joseph was in Egypt. I mean, Satan seemed to be control of everything, and he certainly knew about Joseph, and he certainly wanted to afflict Joseph. But but Satan wasn't in ultimate control of anything. Who's in control of everything? Jesus Christ sits on his throne, and he's in control of everything. And so he overcame Satan, and uh, he overcame everything that Satan threw at Joseph, and uh, he made Joseph abundantly fruitful even in his land of affliction. And that's exactly what he can do for us. That's what we're going to see today as we we go back to this story of Joseph. So if you have your Bibles, go to chapter number 41, and we're going to pick up in verse number 37. And let me set the setting for you before we start. Remember last time, Joseph had interpreted those two dreams that Pharaoh had had. And, and the interpretation that he gave Pharaoh was pretty simple. There's going to be seven years of prosperity followed by seven years of famine. And then he gave him uh, not only the interpretation, he gave him a plan for how he should prepare for the famine. And so as we pick up in 30, verse number 37, it says, So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in all the eyes of his servants. What advice are we talking about? We'll go back to verse number uh, 33. And let's read the advice that Joseph gave to Pharaoh. He says, Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over all the land of Egypt and give him all the power he needs to do what he needs in order to prepare for this famine. 
Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth. So they're going to levy, during this time of prosperity, they're going to levy a 20% tax on everything, on all the produce of the land of Egypt uh, in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are all the 20% of the food that are coming in and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep the food in the cities, in each city. Then the food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which will be in the land of Egypt, uh, that in the land they may not perish during the famine. So Pharaoh and the uh, wise men and the magicians and the diviners and the butler are all listening to this, and they're just amazed at the wisdom coming out of Joseph's mouth. And, and, and I mean, they're stunned by it. Then, in, so in verse number forty, I mean thirty-eight, it says, "And Pharaoh said to the servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the spirit of God?" You see what they recognized in Joseph. They recognized that God lived in him. I mean, Joseph's interpretation was, 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 made, was perfect. Uh, it made perfect sense. His plan for, for uh, handling the famine was brilliant. Uh, uh, and then they see Joseph, and he's got this calm demeanor and this gracious humility. And, and they're all impressed. I mean, they've only been around him a few minutes, just a few minutes here. And, and they can only come to one conclusion, that in Joseph dwells the very spirit of God. Not just any spirit, not just any God, but the true and living God, the spirit of the true and living God. And so, so they see the, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, in Joseph. You know what? There is no greater honor that any of us can have than to be recognized as a man or woman of God in whom people see the Spirit of God. And isn't that exactly who we should be? I mean, we're told in Colossians, Christ in you, your hope of glory, that we're told that we're the very temple of God, we're the very temple of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ lives in us, and so people ought to be able to see that. If they're around us just a few minutes, the first thing they should notice about us is that we're different from people who don't have... Look, God is different from us. And so if, if the Spirit of God is flowing through us, His love and power is flowing through us, we're going to be different people. And I wonder if people really see us as different. Do they really see you as different? I mean, when they see George coming, do they say, Oh, there goes a man in whom dwells the very Spirit of God. I would hope they would see that in me. Now, they might not see that in me when I'm driving in traffic sometimes, but hopefully as a norm, they would see that in me. But they should be able to see that in me all the time. They should be able to see that in you all of the time, that in you dwells the very Spirit of God, and that makes you special. That makes you different uh, and, and uh, a lot different from the average uh, worldly pagan. And, and that means that our witness in this world should be every bit as much powerful as the witness that Joseph had 
when he stood before Pharaoh and all of his wise men. And they looked at him and they said, there is a man in whom dwells the very spirit of the God. I mean, they had thousands of gods. But this God is special and this man is special. And people should be able to say that about us. Because is the the spirit that dwells in Joseph any different from the spirit that dwells in us? No. And again, I wonder if they can say that about us. Hopefully they can say that about us. There goes a holy man or woman of God. They should be able to say that about us. Now look at verse number uh, 39 is the next verse that we want to go to. Verse number 39. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all of this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. I mean, he, he had all his wise men in the room. He had all his diviners in the room. All the priests of all the gods were in the room. And, he, and, and right in front of all of them, he says, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You know, people respect a godly witness. They should, unless they're just given totally over to evil. Now, some people are given totally over to evil. And if you're given total over to, totally over to evil, you're going to hate a godly witness. But most pagan people, most people who don't know Christ, they respect a godly witness, even if they aren't born-again believers. Because that wisdom they know is different. They know that wisdom is special. And why why is that? Well, let me tell you why. Because we're told in Colossians chapter number 2, I believe it is. I wrote the reference down. Colossians chapter 2, number 3. In Christ is all all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, let's interpolate that if Christ is in us then in us is all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge we should have all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge in us now how do we get that how do we get that if we're a born again believer we get that as Jesus told his disciples and told us in John chapter 16 we abide in chapter 50 John Jesus said we abide in him That's how we get it. We abide in him. Now, Joseph didn't have the word of God, but he abided, or abode, however however you say it, it, in Christ. And so in God, in the Lord, Jehovah. And so he had all this wisdom. And if we abide in Christ, we have the word. And so we abide in the word, we abide in Christ. If, if, If you are my disciples indeed, Jesus said, if you abide in my word. So we abide in the word, and by abiding in the word, we have all the wisdom of Christ. And, and that's why Paul exhorted us over and over again to have the mind of Christ. Now, there's only one way to get the mind of Christ, and that's through a relationship with Christ. And that relationship depends upon you knowing what he, who he is and what he believes and what is truth. And where is that truth? That truth is in the word of God. And so, so we get that truth by, uh, or we get that wisdom by abiding in the truth of God. You know, I look at this crisis that we're in today in our nation. And, and what I'm afraid of right now is that everything, it's amazing how things become normal to us. I'm very concerned that all of this is, we're just going to sit here like this 
and one day call this normal. I mean, I, this is not normal. It's not normal at all. And, and, and what I'm really concerned about and what really worries me about our country is that we're not looking for God's wisdom on how to handle this problem. We're looking for the wisdom of doctors and lawyers and politicians. Now, there's some good doctors, there's some good lawyers, there's some good politicians. I'm not, I'm not getting on them. But what's sad is, as a nation, we aren't seeking the wisdom of God. We aren't seeking a man or woman like Joseph or Josephine. We're not seeking some, somebody who has the wisdom of God. I remember years ago when I was younger and some of these crises would come upon our country, crises would come upon our country, and, and, and Billy Graham was there. You know, the president would seek Billy Graham and want to know what Billy Graham, and Billy Graham would come out and pray for the whole nation. We got so many quacks out there that are calling themselves America's pastor that I don't I understand why they're not seeking these guys because they're almost like they're a joke. These guys or these ladies, it's, it's, like, it's like some of them are a joke. But there are some men out there, some, some men who have notoriety in, in the faith that you would think some of these leaders would be seeking, they would be seeking their wisdom. And really, ultimately, what they would be seeking is the wisdom of God. We, let me tell you, on a personal basis, let me exhort you and warn you, you need, in this situation, to be seeking the wisdom of God. You need to seek God in prayer. Whatever situation you're in, whatever happens to your job through this crisis, whatever happens to your family through this crisis, whatever medical needs you might have, you first need to seek God. You need to seek his wisdom. And God, Christ lives in you. And all the wisdom, of, uh, treasures of knowledge and wisdom are in Christ. So you seek him and, and find out what he wants you to do. And, and Pharaoh was wise enough to see that in Joseph. And so, so, hey, man, he's ready to give Joseph everything. In verse number uh, 40, he, he says, in verse number 40, he says, You shall be over my house and all my people. Shall be, and he's only known Joseph for a few minutes. This is absolutely amazing. But in those few minutes, he's seen God in Joseph. And he's, here's the most powerful man in the world bowing the knee not to Joseph, but bowing his knee before God. And he says in, in verse number 40, he says, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Not my word, your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And, and you know, I still have, have the ultimate say in Egypt, but hey, you're really, it's going to be your word that matters. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring. Now that ring was used to seal every document that Pharaoh signed. That, that was to make every contract, to make every decree. That's what that ring was used for, to seal those decrees and seal those documents. And he takes it off his hand and, it, and puts it on Joseph's hand and in fact turns all his power over to Joseph. And he, and, and he took it off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and he clothed him in white garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And, and, and he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And, he, and, the, and the people cried out bef, before him, the soldiers that marched with Pharaoh and, and guarded Pharaoh and Joseph. They cried out before him, bow the knee. 
So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Now just imagine that scene. Pharaoh takes his ring off. He puts it on Joseph's hand. He puts this fine linen on Joseph. And, and uh, uh, they have a parade. And Pharaoh rides first in the parade. And Joseph rides second in the parade. And then everybody is forced to bow a knee not only to Pharaoh, but also to Joseph. Now I wonder what was going through Joseph's mind when everybody in Egypt was bowing a knee to him. You think maybe he remembered those dreams he had earlier about his brothers and his father and his father's wife bowing down before him. He might even thought, you know, I wonder if maybe they're out in the, you know, it's probably a long shot, but I wonder if maybe they're out in that crowd somewhere and if the dream is being fulfilled as, as I ride on this chariot during this parade. I mean, probably not, but maybe they were there. But one day if I ever see them again, they're going to have to bow that knee, just as God said they would one day bow that knee. Then in verse number 44, Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no man shall lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. You think maybe that's one of the greatest rags to riches story ever. I mean, here's Joseph. One day he's in a prison cell in chains and fetters, and the next day he's ruling the greatest empire on earth. Only God could do a thing like that. You know what that says to me? I don't care who you are in this room. None of you are so low that you're in a jail in chains and fetters. But maybe tomorrow you might be at the Capitol running the state. Or maybe you're up at the White House next to Trump running the nation. Now that's probably not going to happen. But if God wants it to happen, it's going to happen. God can do anything in your life whenever he gets ready to do it. I mean, what in the world would cause Pharaoh in just a matter of minutes to turn all his power over to a jailbird and a slave? Well, he saw the Spirit of God in Joseph. That's one thing, and that certainly had something to do with it. But let me tell you the main thing that happened. God changed his heart. Over in Proverbs chapter 21, we're told that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Wherever he wishes. You know what? That's something, a proverb we need to think about during the times in which we live. We need to, we need to ponder that proverb. That the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. You know what that means? That means that the Lord can take the most proud, tyrannical king and turn his heart to putty at any time he gets ready to. I mean, remember what he did to Nebuchadnezzar. One day Nebuchadnezzar was, was, was uh, a one-world leader. I mean, he had power over the entire civilized world at that point. And the next day God had him out in the wilderness living like a wild hermit. 
I mean, God can do anything he wants with a king or leader anytime he gets ready to. Now, that's why Paul, and this is where we're heading here, that's why Paul exhorts us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, for, for us to pray for kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. Listen, if God wants to, he can change President Trump's heart whenever he gets ready to change it. He can change the governor's heart whenever he gets ready to change it. Uh, He can change the mayor's heart whenever he gets ready to change it. He can change your boss's heart whenever he gets ready to change it. He can change your adversary's heart whenever he gets ready to change it. Any adversary you have. And so, instead of fretting so much, maybe what we need to do is turn from our fretting when we're in a bad situation, we're in a, when, when we're in a land of affliction and we have somebody over us that's afflicting us, instead of trying to fight them and, and rebel against them, maybe the thing to do is to get on our knees and pray, Lord, change their hearts. Remove them out of my life or change their hearts. And God is able to do that. This past week, we had a conference call for the pastors here in Louisiana, and I was listening to the last part of that thing. And, and uh, Governor Edwards, again, to his credit, he has allowed us to be open today. But I believe that's because of a lot of prayer. And, and in that conference call, he concluded that conference call, and they asked him, is there anything else you would like to say, Governor, to all these pastors that are on, on, uh, uh, on, on this conference call? And... He said something, and I really sensed he was sincere in what he was saying. He said, if you can do anything for me, pray for me. Ask your people to pray for me. I'm in a very, very difficult situation, and I'm trying to save people's lives. And I just ask that you pray for God's wisdom in my life so that what I do is what he wants me to do. Now, that's pretty amazing. And, and I, we, I really appreciate I'm sure everybody else on the line appreciated that that's a, what, what he wanted us to do for him. All right, now, pick up with me in verse number 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph. Now, here's, let, let me stop for a second here before we go any further. Pharaoh has made this very rapid decision to put Joseph over all of Egypt. But there's one big problem. Joseph is not an Egyptian. Now, at this point, I'm sure he, he spoke the Egyptian language. But he's not an Egyptian. He might have looked a little bit about a, like an Egyptian, but, but he wasn't an Egyptian. And, and, and people were going to kind of buck uh, his authority because he wasn't an Egyptian. So, so Pharaoh's going to do everything he can to make him appealing to the common Egyptian person. So, so look at what he does, and these are the things that he does. And Pharaoh changed his name from Joseph, the Hebrew name, and gave him the name Zaphnapaania. Now, there's all sorts of interpretations as to what that name means. This is an a- ancient language that isn't spoken anymore, and so the, I think they're really guessing. Some people say it means uh, revealer of secrets, which would certainly fit, or sustainer of or, or, uh, or Furnisher of sustenance. I mean, that's possibly what his name means, but nobody really knows. So anyway, it's an Egyptian name. 
Now, here's what's really interesting. And he gave him a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Pharaoh, priest of On. Now, that's really interesting to me because he was the priest of On, Pati Pharaoh was the priest of, of On. Now, On was a city about six miles north of the capital. But it was a very important city because it was where the great temple of Ra was. Ra was considered the greatest god, uh, the source of all other deities uh, in all of Egypt, uh, the sun god. And he was the high priest of the, the temple of the sun god. So he was, a very, he was like the religious uh, one world leader over all of Egypt. And so he was a very important man. And, and, and no doubt his daughter saw Joseph, and Joseph was a very handsome man, and Pharaoh, she was probably a beautiful woman. And Pharaoh said, look, I'm going to put you two together. This is a you know, political arrangement. But I think it came, became much more than that. But you talk about being unequally yoked. I mean, Joseph is unequally yoked. The most pagan man on earth, he marries his daughter. And Joseph was probably the most godly man on earth at that time. Let let me just say this. Sometimes you can't put God into a box on how he works. I mean, there certainly is a great principle to to not be unequally yoked. But sometimes God does things differently from from the way, from, from from the principle. He allows things to happen in life that sometimes don't seem like, they follow biblical principle, but in the end, it ends up being biblical. Now, some people believe that, that uh, this priest, uh, this, this high priest, Potiphar, uh, saw Joseph, the wisdom of God in Joseph. He saw the spirit of God in Joseph. He knew that it was a God that he didn't worship because he had never had the spirit of God like that come upon him. He couldn't interpret the dream. And so he was so impressed that he got saved that day. I don't think so. Now, maybe over the years, and I, I, I certainly believe that Joseph's wife got saved, but maybe over the years, uh, this high priest got saved too. But if he did, he would have given up his job and he wouldn't have been high priest anymore. And, and here he's still the high priest. So, so I don't think he did that immediately. Uh, but but, um, but jo- Joseph, even under this pagan situation with these pagan names, he never loses sight of his God. Never. Never. We know that for sure. Now let's pick up in verse number 46. It says, Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So, remember, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. So now he's 30 years old. So he spent 13 years uh, in, in, uh, in slavery uh, or in prison. And so maybe about half and half. We don't know for sure. I think most of the time was in prison, a few years there in slavery, but... But we don't know exactly how long it was. But anyway, he was 30 years old uh, when he stood before Pharaoh of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. I mean, he traveled throughout Egypt. Why did he do that? Well, he went to every city of Egypt because what's he going to do? He's going to put a granary, a storage for grain in every city. If they had a granary, it's going to have to be larger, so he sets out plans to expand it. If they didn't have a granary, he was going to have to build it. Now, in the seven years of plentiful, uh, in the seven years of plentiful, the, the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered, just as Joseph had predicted, or just as the dreams of Pharaoh had predicted. So he gathered up all the food, the twenty percent of all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up uh, food in the cities. He laid up 
uh, in every city uh, the food of the fields which surrounded him. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. Now, I'm sure after three or four years of this plenty, I mean, they had so so much prosperity that they said to themselves, how in the world with this much prosperity can we ever enter into a time of famine? And I imagine when that sixth year, that seventh year came, they said, look, we're tired of being taxed. I mean, this famine that was supposed to come hasn't come yet. Of course, it wasn't supposed to come until the eighth year, but but it hasn't come yet, and we're still prosperous. It hasn't even faded off. We're still prosperous. We we shouldn't be being taxed like this, and I've probably got a lot of complaints. But but, uh, we know that that famine's coming. All right, then we're told a little bit about what happens to Joseph during these uh, years of prosperity in verse number 50. And to Joseph were born two sons, before the years of famine came, whom Asadoth, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. Very interesting name. And the reason he named him Manasseh is for God has made, and it's a Hebrew word, which, is, which tells me again that his wife probably converted to, to, to uh, Yahweh worship. And so they give him a Hebrew name, and his name is Manasseh. And this is what Manasseh and mean, meant to Joseph. The name Mas- Manasseh simply means uh, made me forget. But, but listen to what he adds to that. He says, for God has made me forget all my toil and, and all my father's house. So here's Joseph. And he looks into the, the face of his little son and he says to himself, and I, I know all of you have ever had children, you've had that exact same feeling. I am, when you see that child's face for the first time, I am so blessed. I mean, if ever you feel blessed, it's when you have a child. And he looked into that face of that child and he named him, made me forget this blessing that God has given me has made, made me realize how blessed I am, and he's made me forget. He's made me forget all my adversaries. He's made me forget this land of affliction. He's even made me forget my family. I mean, those first uh, ten years or so when Joseph was a slave and in prison, he was homesick for home. He wanted to see his dad. He, he, he wanted to see his brother Benjamin, maybe some of his other brothers. Uh, but, but, but now he's, he has this son and he's living in Egypt and he says, you know, I forget all my pain and all my hurt and, and, uh, I even forget them and I forgive them. He, this child, God has blessed me. So he's made me forget all my pain. You know, Joseph at this point had the means if he wanted to, to send an emissary to his family. He could have sent soldiers there and had his brothers killed if he wanted to. He had all the power on earth. And so he doesn't do anything to make contact with his brothers or with his father because he doesn't want to open up those old wounds because he's happy now. And he's got a child, and that child has made him forget all the pain in which he suffered uh, during that time, during those 13 years. And then he had a second son, and in verse number 52, and the name of the second son he called Ephraim. And Ephraim simply means fruitful. 
fruitful. But, but he adds something to that too. He says, for God has called me to be fruitful in the land of affliction. He's caused me to be fruitful even in the land of affliction, especially in the land of my affliction. I mean, here's Joseph, and he's prospering more now than he's ever prospered in his life. And he's bearing fruit. He bears two sons. But Ephraim is just a reminder of the fact that through him, God had produced fruit throughout his time in the land of affliction. There's no doubt that, that, that by, the fruit of the, by, the, by the Holy Spirit, Joseph possessed the fruit of the Spirit. He possessed love and peace and joy and long-suffering and patience and kindness and goodness and righteousness and all of those things that we have through the fruit of the Spirit. And people saw that, and so he was a witness his whole time in the land of affliction. He was a witness to, to Potiphar and to those slaves, that, that his fellow slaves in Potiphar's house. I don't think he had much of a witness on Potiphar's wife, but I believe he had a big impact on Potiphar himself. He had an impact, I'm sure, a witness on the... He bore fruit in that jail with that jailer and with those jailbirds that were there with him. And he bore fruit uh, in, in, in the court of Pharaoh. And now he's bearing fruit in all the land of Egypt with all the Egyptians as he prepares for this famine. And, and he's going to bear fruit during the famine. Joseph was about the business of bearing fruit. So what a name to give his second son, Ephraim, uh, which means fruitful. You know, Joseph had learned a very valuable lesson at this point. And this is where, what we want to learn. If you don't get anything else out of this today, this is the lesson you want to learn. The lesson that Joseph learned was that he could bear fruit in good times as well as bad times. He looked in the eyes of his little baby and he knew that even in those times of affliction, I mean, now he was bearing fruit, but even in those times of of affliction, in those times of affliction that were on their way when this famine came, that the fruit would continue to grow. The fruit, he would bear fruit in his life. And hopefully his son one day and his son Manasseh would bear fruit too. Then we pick up now in verse number 53. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. I mean, seven years... It was over. And the seven years of famine began to come. As just as Joseph had said, just as was predicted in, in Pharaoh's two dreams, the famine was in all the lands, but in the lands of Egypt there was bread. Because of these preparations that Joseph had made, everybody had bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, they cried out to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to the Egyptians, Look, you guys were doubting Joseph. Uh, you didn't believe that this famine was coming? Well, it's here now. So here's what you got to do. You go to Joseph, and whatever he says for you to do, do it. The famine was over all the face of the earth, and Joseph opened all the storehouses and said to the Egyptians, uh, and, and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt and all the lands around them. And, and, and so 
he doesn't just give them this food. He makes them pay for this food. Even though he had taxed them and taken that food, that money, that food that he had taxed them was the food they were going to eat. But Egypt had expended all sorts of money in, in uh, building these storehouses, and so he taxes them for that. And, and I think that's a good thing. He got out of his mess not just giving out handouts like we're doing now here in America. He actually made them pay for, for uh, the food that they ate. And uh, then you have this famine that's going throughout the world, not just Egypt. And all these nations that are surrounding Egypt find out that, that Egypt has food, and so uh, they go to Egypt in order to buy food. Word gets out, the Egyptians have grain, and everybody's out to get the Egyptians' food, to buy the Egyptians' food. It's a good thing they had a good army, or they would have tried to come in there and taken their food. Uh, so all the countries, verse, the last verse we're looking at today. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. And next week, we go back to Canaan. And guess what? In Canaan, they had a famine too. Think maybe God knew that was going to happen? And he's the one who Read Psalm 105. He's the one who brought the famine on the land. He knew that the famine of the land was going to especially affect Canaan. And it was going to cause Jacob to send his sons to Egypt to buy grain. Just as was predicted in that dream when they get to Egypt, they're in for a big surprise. A big surprise. They're going to actually face Pharaoh's prime minister, the man in charge of all of Egypt, the man in charge of all the grain. And they're going to end up bowing their knee to Joseph, just as God had predicted they would do. You see what's happening here? Everything is happening here in this part of Genesis and every bit of history. Let me tell you, every bit of it is part of the providential plan of our sovereign God. Every bit of it. Every bit of the story of Joseph was part of God's plan. It was providence. He, he's looking at that little nation of Israel, uh, that, that nation, and he's going to bring them down to Egypt so that they can be nurtured into the great nation that they became. Uh, but, but all of this is part of that plan. What about the year 2020 and what we're going through here in the United States and throughout the world today? You think maybe that's part of God's plan? You better believe it's part of God's providential plan. Really, I think Israel has some part in that plan. But ultimately, let me tell you what that plan is. That plan is to bring Jesus Christ back to this earth to rule as King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, hey, don't worry. Don't fret. In this world, you're going to have many tribulations. But Jesus says, I'm coming to overcome this world. I'm going to overcome this world. I'm going to rule and reign over this earth. And so, but... In this world, you're going to have many tribulations. So it seems today, I mean, like 
no other time in my life that we're beginning to live in a land where we're having tribulations, where we're living in the land of affliction. And it bothers me to some degree what the church, the way the church is reacting to this. Some people in the church have their heads stuck down in the sand and they say the devil did all of this. And everything's going to go back to normal, just, just hang on and, you know, wait a while. Other people, other Christians I know have the attitude, hey, this is what God wants me to do. God wants me to hunker down and wait for the rapture. I tell you what, be careful with that attitude. You might be, you might, you might not be in the position for the rapture if that's your attitude. Because listen to that warning that Jesus gave us in, in, in John chapter 15. He said, if anyone does not abide in me, then he will be gathered and thrown into the fire. And, and how do you know if you're abiding in him? If they abide in me, they will bear much fruit. And the Father is glorified when you bear much fruit. Now, bearing fruit is not what saves you. But if you're saved, you're not going to be hunkered down selfishly waiting for the rapture. You're going to say, man, the rapture's coming soon. I want to get about the business of bearing fruit. Bearing fruit now, that's what we're to be about the business of doing. And especially more and more as our nation becomes a place of affliction. And, and, and maybe, like I said last week, maybe we're going to go back to where the way things were temporarily. But I don't, even if we do that, and I, don't think, I personally I don't think that's going to happen. But even if we do, it's going to be short-lived because you can't print trillions and trillions of dollars. And, and expect this economy to go on like it's gone on for the last 30 or 40 years. It's just not going to happen. And I've got to tell you right now, the scary thing is, hopefully God's going to use all this to change some of that. But the scary thing is, if, I'll just say it. If certain, I, I won't say it. I'll, say, I'll kind of allude to it. If certain people get take power, total power in the United States, it's over. In this coming election, if certain people take power in the United States, it's over as far as prosperity goes. They're going to bring this nation down. They're going to bring it down. They're not going to bring you and I down. But they're going to bring this nation down. And so we need to be looking for opportunities to bear fruit. Now, you don't bear fruit yourself. You don't say, oh, I'm going to bear some fruit today. You don't do that. How do you bear fruit? You abide in the vine. You abide in Jesus Christ. And I think the best way to abide in Christ is through his word. You abide. You live there in his word. You get the mind of Christ. You attach yourself to Christ instead of this world. A lot of us who call ourselves Christians are attached to this world. And I think it's high time we let go of the world and we attach ourselves to Jesus Christ. The reason Joseph was so successful during the time of affliction in which he lived, the reason, a world much like the world we live in today, there's nothing new under the sun. 
But the reason he was so successful in bearing fruit was that God for 13 years separated, totally separated him from the world and separated him unto himself. And so he had the power to stand before Pharaoh and interpret his dreams and, and, and give that plan for the future. And when we're abiding in Christ, listen to me very carefully, we are overcomers. We overcome the afflictions of this world. We overcome our adversaries. We don't overcome them. He overcomes them. Be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. And by attaching ourselves to him, he overcomes for us. First of all, he overcame for Joseph when he died on the cross. He overcame for me and you when he died on the cross. That's primarily what he was talking about in John 16, 33, when he said, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. He was talking about the fact he's overcome our sin. He's overcome our sin nature. He's overcome death. He's given us life. All of that through the cross and the resurrection. But, but, but he also has overcome, not only overcome our sin and overcome death, he's overcome the devil, our main adversary. He did that for Joseph, and he's done that for us. I mean, in Colossians 2, it said, at the cross and at the resurrection, Satan was made and his demons were made a spectacle. He made a spectacle of them triumphing over them. That's what he's done for us. Uh, he, he, I mean, he overcame the greatest power on earth in Joseph's time. He overcame Pharaoh by changing Pharaoh's heart. And he over, can overcome any adversary you and I face by, by changing that person's heart. He has the power to do that so that we can bear much fruit. If we believe him, if we attach ourselves to him, he'll do that for us too. And, and I think maybe the biggest thing he overcame in Joseph's life was his faulty character. I mean, he was a, a proud, uh, weak, fearful little kid when he went to Egypt. That day he stood before Pharaoh, he was a tall, giant man of God. And he did that. He over, Jesus overcame that spirit, that weak spirit, by giving him his spirit. And he does that exactly for you and I today. And, and I know somebody's sitting here and they're saying, Pastor, you really think in times like we live now that we can bear fruit? I, I believe we can bear fruit. I believe more than any other time we've lived, we can bear fruit. And, and let me close with these words from from Jesus, I mean, this warning that he gives us in Matthew chapter 12, he says, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather, he who does not bear fruit, he who does not gather scatters. And, and, and so it's the wrong attitude to think somehow that we're just supposed to ride this thing out and wait for the rapture. We need to be about the business of bearing fruit. And God will give us the power to do that if we'll take our focus off this world and put our focus on him. As a child of God, you're going to do that one way or the other. You can do it the easy way by just making the choice and doing it, or you can do it the hard way. But in this time of affliction, if you're a child of God, God's going to use you to bear fruit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. 
We thank you for all you've done for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that even in a time of affliction, even in the land of affliction, no matter how bad this world gets, Lord, you can still use us as a witness to this lost and dying world. Father, especially in times like we live now, we should be bearing fruit. We can't make ourselves bear fruit, Lord. We need you to bear the fruit through us. Lord, all we can do is turn to you, turn from this world, make ourselves available. I ask today that, Lord, in every heart in this room, that you just show each and every person here just how much you want to use them in these dark times in which we live how much you want to experience a relationship with them, how much you want to bless their lives just like you blessed Joseph's life. Lord, you are so good to us. You're so good to us. Lord, as we look upon the faces of our children and grandchildren, Lord, we see just how much you've blessed us, just how much we need your protection, just how much we need your blessing in this time in which we live, just how much, Lord, we need to be used by you to bless our children and bless our grandchildren and bless these lost neighbors we have and lost people we have. Lord, to pray for our government, to pray for our president, to pray for our governors. Lord, you can use us in so many ways to bear fruit in a very difficult time. And I just ask that you do that by the power of your spirit that dwells in each and every believer in this room. Lord, if there's someone here who does not have your spirit, they know that. They know they're not living by your wisdom and by your grace. Lord, let today be the day that they choose you, that they choose to allow you to, to come into their hearts and, and, and Lord, to accept, uh, to give them the, the wisdom to accept your propitiation for their sins, the blood that you shed on that cross. Lord, let this be the day of their salvation. Let them turn to you today. Father, again, we just thank you for all you're doing for all of us. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Stan, we'll close in a song.